This is a Fubar Radio podcast. Go to fubarradio.com for more details. Fubar Radio presents. Fubar Radio presents politics on Fubar. You're listening to Politics on Fubar Radio. I'm John Elledge. I'll be with you for the next hour to chat about some of the big issues in the news this week. You know, this this can be a, d- a depressing planet sometimes with, you know, climate change and a flatlining economy and North Korea and Donald Trump. So just occasionally it's nice to, to talk about one of the ways in which the world has very definitely got better. And that's the attitude, I think, in both politics and the general public towards LGBTQ people. When I was a kid in the in the 1980s, it was it was extremely rare to see people out in public life. You know, you never saw gay people on television, except occasionally as a, a comedy stereotype. And and that lack of visibility, I think, can be incredibly damaging, because a kid growing up in that world, thinking they might be gay, would have no one to look up to. There were no stories being told about their experience. And that's without even talking about the active homophobia of of the British government. I mean. The Wilson government decriminalised homosexual acts between two men in, in 1967. We, we've just had the, the 50th anniversary of that, actually. But before that, you know, still within living memory, gay sex between two consenting guys was, was simply illegal. And you know, it seems ridiculous from a modern point of view, but there it was. You know, people actually went to jail for this stuff, for their sexuality. And even the 1967 Act didn't bring about anything approaching equality. Gay men still had a higher age of consent. Gay sex was still illegal in Scotland until 1980 and in, in Northern Ireland until 1982. You know, that's, that's within my own lifetime. Then, of course, there was uh, Section 28, the notorious Section 28 of the Local Government Act. The appalling law which made it illegal for councils to promote homosexual relationships, whatever the hell that means. That, that wasn't even on the statute books until 1988. You know, a lot of people listening to this show will have been alive when that act passed. I... I, as I said, I'm getting on a bit now. I am just about old enough to remember seeing some of this stuff start to change in real time. You know, back in the 90s, I think cultural attitudes began to change and you know, gay and lesbian people began to get a bit more visible. There were, there were TV shows like This Life or, or Queer as Folk was the big one, you know, stuff largely about the gay experience. Then there was, in 1998, George Michael was arrested for propositioning an, un- an undercover cop in a public toilet in Los Angeles. But instead of letting the tabloids shame him for this behaviour, he turned the experience into a music video about being out and proud, which is, you know, that still feels like a pretty revolutionary act from the guy who used to be in Wham. You know, I, sorry, I, I unironically love George Michael. I think he was a truly amazing human being. And anyway, that's, that's as an aside. Think, things have changed in politics too, though. And the Blair government was the one that, that lowered the gay age of consent and created civil partnerships. It passed a whole series of Equalities Acts to, to make it illegal to discriminate. And then two, there was the Gender Recognition Act 2004, which effectively for the first time granted full legal recognition to transgender people. And then the coalition government, which, you know, that was led by a Tory. The coalition government legalised gay marriage. And, you know, accompanying all this and, you know, causing it as well, there's been a huge, huge sea change in, in social attitudes, I think, you know. Like I said, when I was a kid, nobody in public life was openly gay. And now loads of people are. Not just on television, but in sport and in politics, too. I mean, two of Scotland's main party leaders are now gay women, and a third is a bisexual man. And Ruth Davidson, the leader of the Scottish Tories, is not only being talked about as a possible future Tory leader, she's being talked about as a possible saviour for that party. I think it's easy to forget how quickly this change has actually happened. You know, in under 15 years, we've gone from a point where gay marriage was often described as unthinkable to a point where those few European countries which don't recognise it yet are now looking increasingly weird and backwards. Last month, reportedly, a million people attended London Pride. 
it, it's as I said, it can be a depressing world. So it's it's sometimes good to look back and and see some good things we've done. But of course, there's there's always a lot further to go. There's plenty of prejudice still out there. Just because it's more taboo than it was doesn't mean people don't still have, have homophobic views. And there's far too many places I think where a gay couple would probably think twice before advertising themselves as twitch as such. There's also plenty of ways in which LGBTQ people are legally discriminated against too. Um, only a few weeks ago now, the British government uh, announced it was consulting on, on streamlining the process by which trans people can change their gender and also making it easier for gay men to give blood. The fact it's doing those things is, of course, a mark of progress, but it nonetheless highlights the fact that institutional prejudice still there exists. And then, of course, there's Donald Trump, who only last week tweeted... I'm going to quote this one. It goes on a bit. After consultation with my generals and military experts, please be advised that the United States government will not accept or allow transgender individuals to serve in any capacity in the U.S. military. Our military must be focused on decision and overwhelming victory and cannot be burdened with the tremendous medical costs and disruption that transgender in the military would entail. Thank you. I mean, it's the thank you there that really makes that statement art, isn't it? Now, as it happens, some of those generals and military experts, who I don't think he actually did consult, some of them have now spoken out against the ban. There was an open letter signed by more than 50 of them. Nonetheless, it shows that in both society and politics, prejudice is still very much a factor. And it's also, I'm aware throughout this kind of spiel, I'm aware it's very easy for me as a straight, white, cisgender man to sit here and talk about how brilliant things are when I'm not the one who's facing the struggle when things aren't brilliant. So that's that's the theme of today's show, LGBTQ rights, how far we've come and how far we have to go. In a few minutes, we're going to talk to Christine McGinn, a former U.S. naval surgeon and a trans woman herself, who is now offering free surgery to transitioning members of the U.S. military. In our live studio debate, we're going to be discussing what progress we've made and, and what we have left to do. And then I'm particularly excited about this part. I'm going to interview George Montague, a 40, uh, sorry, a 94-year-old campaigner who describes himself as the oldest gay in the village. If you'd like to comment on anything in today's show, please do get in touch. You can tweet us on at FUBAR Radio or you can email us at politics at FUBAR Radio. Next up, I am going to be talking to Sophie Cook, a Labour politician who last June came very close to being elected as Britain's first transgender MP. But to begin our conversation, we are going to look at just how LGBTQ rights have become a part of the political conversation. This is a show about politics. Obviously. So why is it that we're talking about the LGBTQ community? Why is it that we're taking a historical landmark, such as the partial decriminalisation of homosexuality, and making it political? Well, here's Ian Paisley Jr., who is an MP for the DUP, speaking on the BBC's Question Time. I take a very traditional view on marriage. And I know that it's probably very unpopular nowadays and I'll be accused of being a dinosaur and being behind history and all the rest of it. But I believe marriage is fundamentally about children. Immoral, but, offensive but, and obnoxious, but, but, you but say. I, I, but I will... Is that... Is that, is that but, do you stand well, by that? Well, well, I'm entitled to those views, yeah. I'm entitled to those... Yeah, I'm entitled to those views, and indeed I will be challenged by them and accused of having... All I'm not challenging you for having of, the views. Of, of opposition you, you just said earlier you them. weren't against gay relationships and now it seems no, no, you probably uh, no, are. So, how have campaigners responded to the hostility? A Guardian documentary made by journalist Owen Jones drew attention to some of these marginalised voices. Those rights that we won, they weren't gifts. We fought for them and they could be taken away and you know we're seeing them being taken away in America under the Trump administration and 
That, of course, is the fear with the DUP, that those rights that we have in this country will now be challenged. The closing of mental health services over the last kind of seven years, particularly Mind Out, the LGBT service, has been a big problem for us. There's been a growth in the number of people wanting to access gender reassignment services via the NHS. Uh, so there's a constant sense that those services are just under threat entirely. And problems with housing, insecure housing. So I think the effects of austerity have been, been particularly acute. Next, we're going to hear from Stonewall activist Robbie DeSanto. Stonewall is a charity which campaigns for the equality of lesbian, gay, bisexual and trans people across Britain. We need to reform uh, the gender recognition law so that transgender people have equal rights. And there's a lot of work to do to tackle the bullying, the poor mental health that all LGBT people are much more likely to experience. So yes, pride is political and we're here to get people fired up about what there is left to do. You're listening to Politics on Foobar with me, John Elledge. Uh, now I'm going to talk to Sophie Cook, the woman who came very close to becoming Britain's first transgender MP. Sophie uh, stood in the East Worthing and Shoreham constituency last June, where she got nearly 40% of the vote. And this is particularly good. She achieved a 20-point swing to the Labour Party. Uh, when, when not working in politics, Sophie is the team photographer for the football team AFC Bournemouth. Hi, Sophie. How are you doing? I'm all right, John. Thank you very much for joining us today. It's good to talk to you. And you. So it sounds like you've had you've been pretty busy the last couple of years. Um, I understand you 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 came out as trans in 2015, and then you you decided to run for parliament. It's so you know you've you've had a lot on since 2015. Um, I, I, if it's okay, I'd like to start by talking about your your experience of of coming out. If that's okay, I mean you were working in football at the time, which from the outside at least looks like a, a pretty blokey environment. How how did you find people responded to 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 your 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 transition? Well, when I came out, I was uh, a bit concerned that uh, I'd never ever work in football again. And uh, I mean, the reality was that w- when, when I went to the club and, and told them uh, that I was trans, uh, which I think caused a little bit of a shock, because um, it was the last thing any of them ever, ever thought I'd say, it, it turned out I still had a job and uh, I, I went in to meet the players and... Um, the, the great thing is that when I was actually introduced to the players, they ended up clapping me, and I, I never received anything but but love and support for, from the management, the players, and especially the fans. The fans were absolutely amazing in in the love and support that they gave me, and the way they rallied around me every time I was uh, subjected to transphobic abuse online. Yeah, no, it's it's often talked about how how people still think it's quite difficult to be gay in football which is obviously you know it's, it's a different but related issue so I, I think you know your, your experience perhaps suggests that may, maybe if a footballer was to come out then they get a more positive response than, than perhaps the media might expect them to well, I mean my experience was that sort of I, I, I had fans coming up to me and hugging me and sending me all sorts of messages of support and I was just a lowly photographer I, in the scheme of things I was a nobody in professional football uh, and yet the fans gave me so much love. If if it was a player who, of course, the fans adore, um, I can imagine that, that they would get so much love and support from all around the world. Obviously, they're going to get some abuse because that's that's the nature of the beast and that's what happens, unfortunately, in in life, uh, in society and in football. But, but the majority of people, the majority of football fans, the majority of people out in society a good decent people that, that believe in equality and believe in, in actually uh standing up to bigotry 
you've said in the past that you you knew you were you were trans from quite early in your childhood i think i mean what what was it like having that identity knowing that about yourself but not feeling able to be open about it well i've known that i was trans since i was seven years old uh, i remember going on uh holiday with my parents and, and telling the other kids that my name was jenny but um the, the thing is this was the mid 70s and we didn't have the internet we didn't have the knowledge uh if if s s someone was gay or trans next thing you know they'd have ended up on the front page of the news of the world but uh, so, so this was all i saw um in the world of what being trans was so because of that, because of that lack of knowledge, the first time that I attempted to take my own life, I was 12 years old. And wow. my, my youngest daughter is that sort of age now, and that, that would break my heart to think that she could be in that sort of pain. How, I mean, that's, yeah, I mean, how did you get through it? What kept you going? I have no idea what kept me going through my childhood. Um, I, it's one of those things, you, you do keep going. And, I mean, I've struggled with my mental health my entire life. Um, for, first, first with that when I was a child, and then I joined the Air Force at 16 and saved someone's life at the age of 18 after an explosion that led to post-traumatic stress. Um, and so, so my entire life has been a combination of gender dysphoria, post-traumatic stress, uh, and and that that leads to struggling with self-harming and suicide for, for years. And I don't know, it's I don't know what kept me going all these years, but sort of. I'm, I'm glad that I did. Yeah, I think we all are. <laughs> I, I got to the end eventually. What, um, if, if I can ask, what was it that drew you to the the military? Um, I was third generation Air Force. It's not like I was trying to overcompensate or anything. Mm. I've been, been brought up on stories of the Air Force, and, and I, I'd always wanted to do it. I mean, when, when you're a seven-year-old kid and you've got phantoms flying over your house at 50 foot in the air, it's sort of quite impressive, so... I sort of ended up going and working on tornadoes for 15 years. Um, and it's the same. I mean, like, I, I also race motorbikes out in the Middle East. And because Steve was quite, I don't know. Sorry, I didn't say Steve was, was your, your identity yeah, before the transition. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Steve, Steve did lots of things. It, it's not like, not like he was overly macho, but he... Sure. Like to venture, I think that, that I think that was the thing. And I, no, I, I, just, I just thought I'd ask because because yeah. we're talking about later in the show. We're going to be talking about Donald yeah. Trump's tweets about uh, oh, banning yeah. people, banning trans people from the U.S. military. So it just seemed like quite yeah. an interesting, interesting parallel. Yeah. Well, the great thing about that is the way that after his latest Twitter rant, um, the, the British military came out in such positive tones about, about the transgender members of our forces because the British military have been absolutely amazing over the past few years. I mean, I was in the Air Force back in the 80s when, when it was still illegal to, to be gay, let alone trans in the forces. Mm. And, and it was great to see so many senior military figures in this country actually take to social media to express support for, for the trans members of our forces. What was it that made you want to run for Parliament earlier this year? Um, I've always wanted to get involved with, uh, with politics ever since I was a teenager in the Air Force and I started travelling the world and seeing some of the social injustice that was out there. Um, but of course, it, the time wasn't right. The time wasn't right for a trans politician in the past. And um, 
everything that I've done since I came out two, two years ago was, was to try and make the world a better place. Uh, I, I lost a lot in transitioning and in becoming who I, I was supposed to be. And if the only thing I got out of that was being me, it wasn't worth that price. So I've, I've been campaigning for the last two years. Everything I've done with with my TV work and my speaking work and my activism has all been to try and change the world in some small way. And there's no better way to try and help people and make their lives better than by going into politics. Now it seems like the right time. What would it have meant to you if you had become Britain's first trans MP, do you think? Um, Becoming the first trans MP would have, well, it's a historic moment, but more than that, it's actually standing up and representing the people of the constituency. I mean, the only people that made a, a big thing of my gender identity during the election campaign were the press, uh, out on the streets and in hustings and talking to the electorate. What they saw was they saw me as a person, they, they saw my integrity, they saw, saw my honesty, and they saw my beliefs. And and that coupled with, with a great uh, party manifesto and and some great ideas that we've got meant that they, 20, nearly 21,000 people voted for me. Yeah, um, as, as I said before so, so, we started the interview, you, you 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 saw quite a swing in your direction. So do you think you'll <laughs> do you think you'll stand again? Uh, well, uh, that's that's not down to me. That's down to whether I get selected or not. But I mean, it, when when, when I, as soon as I became the candidate, my my very disparate CV. Uh, suddenly made sense. I mean, I'm ex-Air Force, seven years in the Middle East, TV presenter, writer, speaker. Um, All of a sudden, it's like, oh, that's what those skills are good for. (laughs) Um, And and it's something that that I I truly believe that I would be be really good at. And I'm going to keep fighting for, for people. Um, I, well, I will hopefully, stand again, whether it's there or somewhere else, but, but I will stand again. Well, hopefully you'll, you'll get a chance to keep fighting for people. Sophie, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you very much, John. Next up, I'm going to be speaking to Dr. Christine McGinn, who's uh, an ex-US Navy surgeon who's been offering free surgery for transgender military patients. Hi, Christine. Thank you for being with us. Good morning. How are you? I'm very good. How are you? I'm good. So, so the, the first obvious question is, you know... <laughs> How did you feel when you saw President Trump's tweets? Um, not surprised. Um, well, actually, actually, honestly, I was surprised. <laughs> this was a new low, <laughs> um, just because it was so obvious. You know, uh, he, it, it just was frank dis- discrimination. No, no hiding it. No uh, trying to disguise it. Um, so I was surprised. Yeah, it was completely. Th- th- there was no explanation for it whatsoever, was there? It's just you know absolute blatant prejudice. Well, I don't. Yeah, there is an there is a backstory that I'm not sure you guys are getting um, over there. Um, CNN had reported that the decision was um, had something to do with a bill that Congress, a funding bill that Congress was looking at to um, partially fund his wall with Mexico. Uh, And so what happened was there were some conservative, a handful of conservative Congress members who um, said they wouldn't sign it unless they took out, in the same bill was paying for transgender surgery, which is a very specific thing. So 
his reply was sweeping, and um, he didn't consult with any of the members of military who had been working on this program under the Obama administration for years. And so everything was set up uh, and working fine, and um, because it's this bill threatened his wall without consulting anybody, um, he just sweepingly kicked all transgender people but, out of the military. So effectively, to, 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 to assist in his prejudice against one group of people, he's launched into a completely different group of people. Yeah, I guess that's a very good perspective and a true perspective. <laughs> one of the things I found interesting about his tweet was he, he sort of claimed he'd done this after consultation with, with you know, serving generals and military experts many of whom have since signed this open letter against the policy. I, I mean, do you get the impression he consulted with anyone in the military at all? I, well, you know, it's hard because there's been so many lies that, you know, everything that comes out of his mouth is a lie. So unless I saw that piece of paper, I wouldn't believe it, number one. And number two, you know, I'm dealing, I'm dealing with the, the patients in the military and their commanding officers on a, on a lower level and everything was working fine. So I don't see that. And my comment on it is that this, what we're supposed to stand for and what all these people are in the military for is to protect the equal rights and freedom. I mean, that's, that's our slogan over here. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, it just goes against everything. It, this isn't um, a religious thing. This is a, a, medically, uh, a medical evidence-based condition that we can't pick and choose what we're going to we're going to treat and cover. You know, what if he was all of a sudden to say, we're going to kick everybody out of the military that has post-traumatic stress disorder because it's too expensive. It just doesn't make any sense. That's not how we operate over here, before Trump anyway. Sure, sure. But you've, you know, you're, you're a surgeon yourself, obviously, and you, um, uh, you're in a position to kind of do something positive about this. So you're, 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 you're promising free surgery for, for those who will not be able to get it through the military anymore. Is that right? Right. And I think the bigger message here, you know, yes, on an individual basis, hopefully it'll help these folks. I'm not sure they'll ever end up. Um, I'm not sure. The military has the power to block them from having surgery, even if I pay for it for free, um, if they keep them in. If they get kicked out, then we can do something about it. Um, but what what I'm trying to do is, is uh, offer an, an, an olive branch to just think about this reasonably. You know, maybe, you know, if I do some free surgery, because I, I feel that this won't be a big deal to have to take care of these people. I, you know, I made this offer a week ago, and we've only had 15 people request surgery. So when he says that financially it's a burden, and it's not, and I knew it wasn't going to be, so I made the offer. Um, and that's something I can accomplish in a few months. I can get everybody taken care of. And as far as readiness goes, that was his other issue. You know, he's he has no idea what he's talking about because he doesn't do the surgery. So I, I, I think that there are plenty of people in the military that have worse conditions that are treated and the patients stay in the military. And, and um, uh, you transitioned yourself when you were when you were a serving military officer. Is that right? Um, yes, partially. I transitioned in 2000, but most of my tr uh, transition was after I got out of the Navy. And how, I mean, it, it feels to me from the outside like uh, trans rights have come a long way in, in, since, since the turn of the century. I mean, what was it like sort of being open about being trans in the military in the year 2000? Well, I did, you know, I asked, I, I asked a few people that I trusted in the military what they thought about all this. And, um, you know, I... 
I had to I had to go on with my medical training as well. So, you know, there were there were more things involved with my decision to leave the Navy, but that was a big one. Um, I don't know. It, it's a hard question to ask. It was 20 years ago for me, and it was a different time. <clears throat> but for sure, you know, I was I, I did have a promising career in the in the military. Things might have been different if the rules were different. But you know, this is all about. When you sign up for the military, it's all about the, um, the rules that exist. And so this is why this is so devastating, is these folks have were lulled into a sense that it was safe to come out based on the rules. And now, basically, it's a witch hunt for those people. You know, they, were, <laughs> they have a false sense of security in coming out. How has the, the reaction from, from you know, the world at large to, to President Trump's tweets made you feel? I mean, it, it feels like people I, have well, been... Quite supportive of the trans community. Yeah, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing um, to see all the support. What I since you know this offer that I made, it was an early morning show on CNN, but it it went around the world. I'm getting supportive mail from South Africa, all over the world. And really, you know, if you look at what's happening right now, I'm not surprised. You know, every discrimination situation or minority. Uh, movement like uh, with any minority has to go through the pendulum swings both ways so so you look at any movement it goes you know where it gets better but then there's some pushback and it gets better and then there's some pushback I wasn't expecting you know because really we're looking at a big uh, change over two or three years really in this country where there has has been a great advance of transgender rights so, of course, there's going to be some pushback, and this is just one thing. I'm not sure he's going to be able to enforce this, quite honestly. And transgender people have been serving in the military uh, as old as the military has been and will continue to serve. The question is just whether they're supported or not, um, because it's something. How are you going to—you can't take a test to see if somebody's transgender or not. <laughs> of course. I mean, do you think that actually— is it possible that this kind of attack from President Trump could actually sort of help bring these these kind of rights more into the public eye and, and sort of actually build support for them, paradoxically? Well, I've got about 40 requests for interviews. So, yes, <laughs> the answer is a big yes. Well, thank you, Christine. Best of luck with, the, with your work. And thank you very much for being with us this morning. All right. And, and I really do appreciate your interview. It's, it's helpful for the community. Thank you. Sure. Well, thank you very much for, for taking the time. All the best. Okay, bye-bye. FUBAR Radio presents... Harriet Rose with Nossa. I'm so excited. Dawn Robinson is in the studio right now. Yeah! Oh, my God! <laughs> En Vogue, in terms of getting into the music industry when you did, mm -hmm. you know, it was a time where it was very different time to what it is now. Oh my now. God, yeah. It's I mean, 1991, someone came and showed us what the internet was going to be. <laughs> I was serious. They really literally brought these big, huge, gigantic two pieces and they put them together like a suitcase and said this is going to be the web and we're like okay great we gotta go we weren't, <laughs> we weren't interested every Thursday Harriet Rose with Nossa from 4pm FUBAR Radio you're listening to Politics on FUBAR Radio with me John Elledge uh, now it's time for our, our, our studio debate where we're talking about what progress we've made on LGBTQ rights and what we still need to achieve in the studio with me today, I have the investigative journalist Jasmine Anderson. How are you doing, Jasmine? I'm good, thank you, John. How are you? I'm good, thank you for being here. We also have Fahan Khan, who describes himself as a, a queer, intersectional Scottish Muslim. Fahan, good to have you here. Uh, thanks, yeah, I'm great to be here. And lastly, not in the studio, but down the line, we have Josh Jackman, a reporter from the uh, gay news website Pink News. Nice talking to you, Jack. Uh, Josh, sorry. 
It was a great you too. Always a pleasure. <laughs> Josh, actually, if I could stay with you to start. I, I started today's show with a slightly self-congratulatory spiel about how much progress British society has made on, on a lot of the issues in, in this community. Mm. Do you think that's right, or am I just being a bit smug about this? What do we still have to do? I think we're right to take a moment and clap ourselves on the back, um, especially uh, during the 50th anniversary. Uh, I think there's a lot of progress still to be made, though. You mentioned at the the beginning of this debate that uh, it's LGBTQ rights, and I think we still have to make some progress on intersex issues, asexual issues, um, and just bringing uh, also pansexual issues into the mainstream. So you actually, you wrote a piece this week arguing that everyone should learn the initialism LGBTQQIAP2 and stop complaining about it. I'm, I'm going to be honest about my own failings in life. I don't currently instinctively know what all those letters mean. Why do you think it's important that we can talk about these, these other initials there? Yeah, I mean, that's completely fair, John. I, I didn't know for a long time uh, what a lot of those letters meant. But uh, the fact is, it's... It's 10 letters, it's not that hard, and it's important that we talk about things like intersex people, asexual people, pansexual people, even bisexual and trans people. We still don't have enough publicly, uh, enough public knowledge uh, on these issues to just kind of naturally accept these people into uh, society and the workforce and, uh, and our political sphere as well. Jazz, actually, that's something I was I, I was thinking about. I think sometimes there is a danger when we talk about these issues. We mostly end up talking about gay men. I think tend to dominate this debate because men, men tend to do that, don't we? As you know, you know, do you think we underplay the experience of of you know other people in in the LGBTQ world? Definitely. I think that binary harms us all, and especially as a bisexual, I found that binary personally coercive and so coercive for other people and you kind of look at the system and you think even in terms of nightlife I feel like the nightlife available is orientated towards gay men gay characters on television programs excluding the L word all tend to be male and if there are any female representations of someone who identifies as gay it just always seems to be so heavily sexualized there's no real validity in the female experience and even still you know we're a bottom article on articles stating that you know in 76 countries it's still illegal to be gay and 45 of those countries it's about women and you know even though that majority figure is there and of course that does target men more i think we need to also think about gender and what role that plays in the system as well no i find, I find it very interesting that the film pride which is a magnificent film but all the gay male characters in it are these kind of rounded human beings whereas like the lesbians are like you know comedy background characters which i thought was slightly strange yeah, and it's my favourite film. Even in spite of that, it's my favourite film. But God, the film industry, all in all, has a real problem with representing women. And, yeah, it's incredibly frustrating. Fahan, if we come to you, you describe yourself as a queer intersexual Muslim. So I'm kind of curious, what does intersectionality mean from your point of view? Intersectionality is extremely important. And that is uh, no, it's really highlighted in the big uproar that's happened uh, from adding the addition of the black and the brown stripes onto the pride flag. That's happened in Philadelphia. Now, that's being taken up by, for example, the Pride House in Melbourne in Australia. And it represents the queer person of colour experience, which is also underrepresented. 
Um, now, my argument is the, the word in- intersexuality reminds you that it's across all, um, you know, all, all kind of like people that are in the LGBTQ plus um, community, women, there are women of colour, disabled people, there are disabled people of colour, you know, there are bisexual people, bisexual people of colour, they're all, people of colour are in all of those sections, but they're always marginalised and they're always misrepresented. And the the backlash has mostly been by cisgendered white men. They don't want to see those stripes, right? They don't want to see it. They don't want to be reminded of the fact that people of colour exist and they are marginalised. And they don't want to be reminded that actually there is a system of oppression a little bit. You know, a little bit of a system of oppression where white people have got this privilege, but they don't want to recognise that it exists because it confronts them with this reality that they may, they may have unearned privileges. Do you think racism is, is a big particular it's issue in the community? It's a huge problem in the LGBT plus community. It's so overt and it's so um, unchallenged and it's really, really hurtful, actually, for people of colour. It's really just hurtful. White men on dating apps and in general, like in pubs and things like that, think it's perfectly all right to say, I'm not into blacks, I'm not into Asians, I'm not into femmes. You know, they're, they're averting that because they think it's their preference. So they're perfectly, it's perfectly acceptable to say those things. What they don't seem to realise is that, that white people are in a majority. So when they say no blacks, no Asians... They're, they're attacking a minority, actually, by being overt about their preference in that regard. Okay, they're, actually, they're actually going along with, a, with the system of oppression. It's different for a white person to say they don't fancy blacks and Asians than it is for a black person to say they're not into white guys. It's mm. different, and that difference isn't appreciated by them or entertained. Josh, in your, your job at Pink News, you're obviously reporting a lot of the, the political debate going on in the community. I mean, how... How much is, is are issues of, of race and intersectionality being discussed? Oh, yeah. I mean, not enough, I'd say. Um, race and intersectionality are, um, as was just said, very important issues um, in the LGBT sphere. And I think in Britain especially, we've kind of fallen behind on talking about them. Uh, I think something Jazz said uh, was also important. We, in TV shows and films in Britain... Uh, we've uh, we've lacked the the capacity to show uh, intersectional, uh, bisexual, and lesbian relationships with any kind of fullness. Uh, whereas if you look at the US, there's a show called The Bold Type, which just showed uh, a Muslim lesbian artist uh, getting together with a black uh, queer woman, and it showed it in a really fantastic way uh, that really made them seem 100% well-rounded humans. Um, I think there's a lot of work for us to do here in Britain on the issue. Jazz, how important do you think... I mean, at, at the top of the show, I was talking a bit about, you know, representation of gay people on television, how, that, how that's changed a bit. But what, how important do you think it is for people growing up gay or bi or lesbian or trans and being able to see themselves there on screen? It is so incredibly important because no-one knows... A family structure you know for me I was raised in a Catholic family and luckily my parents are pretty open-minded but when you're looking for outside cultural references to validate you because you know especially where I come from gay people were discussed in fact you know in my education they were chastised and I really needed to see something on the outside to say you know what who you are is okay and you know people forget 
the importance of things like soap operas, that first kiss on, what, what was it? Brookside. Brookside, yeah. <laughs> that first kiss. And, you know, tabloids took it on and made it their own and made it all about, you know, looking at that through the male gaze. But actually, that was a watershed moment for so many people. And those iconic moments do stay with you. And, yeah, I think it's incredibly important. Do you think something... I mean, like, I remember the, the the Channel 4 show, Skins, was a big thing probably when you were... I'm trying to work out, you were a teenager, maybe? I mean, was something like that... Did that feel like an important step? Right. Yeah, I just hatched out of my egg then, John. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know what? Skins was great, and it even just in the terms of how it showed promiscuity. And, you know, I think... What we also forget in the gay community is we use this strapline so often. I think the guy liner brought it up, uh, that love is love. And really, I find there to be like quite a few frustrating tenets with that. The idea that you have to be in love in order for your relationship with any one of the same sex to be valid. When really looking at sexuality in all of its forms, including those horrific shags, those horrific one night stands, you know, they're important too. Mm. I think it's getting that wealth of experience. Yeah, something else I, I sort of mentioned in passing was was that George Michael obviously died last Christmas um, when he was caught having sex in a Los Angeles public toilet. He not only sort of refused to be shamed by that, he made this whole music video about, you know, having sex with men in toilets and how fantastic it was. And he was like completely sort of proud that like, this is my sexuality, this is who I am. It doesn't always need to be about love like that, does it? Well, no, of course, it doesn't always have to be about love. We, I think we, uh, you know, there's a tendency to shame. I think shame is very prevalent. Shame is very prevalent amongst um, LGBTQ people. I think, I don't know what it's like for a bisexual woman, for example, but I know that for a lot of gay men, um, that shame sticks with you your whole life. You're attracted to someone of the same sex. You're told, I mean, I was told that I would burn in all uh, in hellfire for all eternity for if I entertained you know my urges I'm sure it was the same for Catholics I'm sure it was the same for Protestants I'm sure it was the same for a lot of people what people don't seem to understand is actually um, there are Muslim countries where uh, you know attitudes towards homosexuality are actually quite progressive those countries weren't touched by British colonial rule Victorian Britain has a lot to answer for in terms of uh, that shame. So we understand that shame. And that shame leads to rage, actually. And that can manifest itself in the bitchy queen. That can manifest itself in, like, you know, just the kind of, like, the passive aggression that some gay men get accused of. Sex is sex. I mean, women... Sorry, men uh, that are straight don't get shamed for being overtly sexual, I mean, you know, amongst themselves or in media. They kind of get... You know, they get understood. It's different for gay men. They're shamed for it, you know? Women are shamed for it. Mm, I feel like straight men are the only ones who get away with it. Yeah, they are. Well, that's patriarchy for you, I suppose. I'm kind of... I'm kind of... If, I, I'm also... It's astounding the way it turns out how, how... Or, like, the British Empire was also responsible for, for homophobia in the world. It turns out to be one of our more successful exports, unfortunately. It's been a huge export. It's been a huge export to India. And in, it was only in 2009 that Section 377 of the Indian Penal Code, an old Victorian law that criminalised homosexuality, was repealed. That was great. There was a big fanfare. You know, all, all these gays came out of the closet and they were like, I'm gay. Right. And it was great. Um, but then those attitudes have stayed behind. And some of the, the homophobic people that are you know, in the upper echelons of government in India 
brought it back in in 2011. Suddenly, all of these gay people that had come out of the closet were labelled as criminals in 2011, you know? They were exposed. And that's the problem. It's not just about law. It's not about regulations. It's about social stigma, right? You're now labelled as a criminal. Just being out in a, in a hostile place, you're... You know, you're, you're, it's, it's hostile to you. Mm. Well, yeah, I think it's all very well to say, oh, you know, there's much less homophobia these days. But it's still, there are no doubt lots of places where it would be quite difficult for two people of the same gender just to walk along holding each other's hands. In yeah. Britain, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Josh, I'm kind of curious what, I, I've obviously been doing a certain amount of reading for this, this show, but, you know, what, what, what are the big issues in, in the community that you think, what, what, what are the, what's the next frontier, I guess, is the question I'm asking. What aren't we talking about enough? Um, I think, uh, to go back to the top of, sh- of the show, I think we're not talking about, um, we're not talking about intersex people, we're not talking about non-binary people in particular, um, or asexual, pansexual, there's, it's very confusing for a lot of people, and it's very hard for people to accept that the world of sexuality and gender is so different from what they thought it was, but I think we've still got a lot of work to do in that area, and as was just touched upon, Social stigma still exists. Um, we've got to fight to combat that here, and we really should be doing more abroad because, as as we just discussed, um, so so many. I think two billion people are still uh, hamstrung by the fact that uh, homosexuality is illegal in their countries, and that for all of them is because of British colonial rule. So we should be doing more to fight that as well. Um, I don't know why we're not talking about it in the public sphere. I suspect it's the same reason we generally don't talk about things to do with the British Empire. It's because <laughs> none of us have talked about it at school because we're all a little bit embarrassed and awkward around the subject. Mm-hmm. We just don't like to think about it. So, Jazz, from your point of view, what, what, what should we be discussing more, do you think? It's, it's really hard because I do feel like, in general, the spectrum's getting a lot more exposure, especially trans rights at the moment. But I think it's actually falling through with policy And there's a lot of scaremongering around trans rights at the moment. Like, trans people haven't existed as well since the dawn of time. Um, So I think it's getting that gap of exposure and interest right in accordance with actual campaigning and policy. And for me, just on a personal level, I would like the bisexual identity to be included and validated when we have these LGBT conversations. Because, you know, there's a B in there. It's part of the sandwich. Let's talk about it more. Yeah, and no, the bi-visibility is a whole campaign, isn't it? Because we do, even, again, when we talk about this stuff, we tend to sort of talk in, in binaries rather than sort of people who may be somewhere in between. Absolutely. So yeah. this Pride, I was one of the 50 people who did march for bisexual rights. And we had to actually fight pretty hard to get that slot. We were kind of overlooked by Pride itself in spite of the fact that a lot of cooperation's got a slot. Sorry, 50 people? 50 people. I, I read earlier, I thought 26,000 marched in London Pride, so that's not big representation no, really, is it? it's minor. It's, I mean, that's a whole letter. And yeah. even though we were there with our Bi Pride t-shirts, the bisexual flag, um, one of our community went up and spoke to one of the presenters at the side who was uh, facilitating the march. And he actually made a joke, have you guys not even decided yet? And I thought, blumineck. If we're getting that at Pride itself, how far have we got to go? It is amazing how many of the problems come back to men being men. Yeah, but anyway, for Harm, what do you think we need to be discussing? I, I more? think that's, you know, just, to, just in the last point that you made, why should we have to decide to choose one? 
You know? Yeah. <laughs> That's not what human sexuality is about. You don't shut off your attraction to a whole gender just because, just to suit other people. So, sorry, your question was, what should we be focusing? Yeah, what, what, what's the next frontier? Like, we've, like I've, I've patted myself on the back for, for British society having having made progress on this, but obviously there's always more to do. What, what, oh, what do so you much. think, yeah, what, what are the things we need to be talking about more? All the letters, what they mean, definitely. Um, we, do, we need to talk about the system. We need to talk about who really has the the upper hand here, who gets to live their life without being challenged. And that, and by and large, is um, people that are cisgendered, people that, uh, you know, live the life that they uh, were assigned at birth, live the gender that they were assigned at birth. That's, they need to understand that that's lucky. That's luck, you know? A lot of people, trans people, for example... I know a lot of trans people that are in the closet still. I've talked to older trans people in the closet and they would not think of of living the gender that they want to live. They wouldn't think about it. Even though things have progressed, I I spoke to someone that I know in the workplace, not the current workplace, um, because I don't want to out them. But anyway, he said he would never live the gender that he is and he can't believe that I'm openly gay in the workplace. He can't believe it. And this is a man in his 50s, I think it is. He said that he would just get... If he were at my age, out as a trans person, he would have been beaten up, beaten to an inch of, a li- of his life, just for being, uh, you know, just for living the gender that he really wanted to live, you know, right? Putting on a pretty dress, like wearing a little bit of slap, like putting a bit of slap on. What's the big deal? You know, these pe- these things aren't hurting anyone. Why on earth does it cause so much trouble? Now, David Donald Trump has banned transgenders for from the military. I have news for Donald Trump. Transgenders mm. have been in the military since the military began. And actually, the military has probably attracted some of the best soldiers because they wanted to hide their sexual... Mm. Uh, their, their, a gender identity by being hypermasculine. We could we could talk about all this stuff all day, but sadly we are running out of time. Just before we go, though, I'd just like to ask Josh, just the, 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 the ten letters which I've shockingly failed to learn, can you just kind of explain what the less familiar ones mean for, for anyone who might not know? Absolutely. Um, I'm sure we're all familiar with LGBT. Then there's Q for queer. Uh, another Q for questioning, uh, which is what it sounds like, I guess. Um, I is for intersex. Uh, a is for asexual, then there's P for pansexual, and two for two-spirit, which is a Native American, typically Canadian, indigenous, uh, non-binary. Uh, okay, that's, that's, that's one I've never come across. I'll have to do some more reading. Well, thank you to all our guests in the studio today and, and down the line. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. Coming up next, I will be speaking to George Montague, the, uh, the 94-year-old author of The Oldest Gay in the Village. But first, our reporters took to the streets of Islington, where Fubar is based, to ask the pu- what the public think of equality for the LGBTQ plus community. I think definitely more can always be done for equality. I think possibly introduce something where people who are from maybe more orthodox backgrounds and whose parents aren't as accepting, they can get a degree of that acceptance in school that will carry them further. Um, I suppose I don't really have much... Uh knowledge about um the topic really but i still feel like there's loads to be done um there's always going to be disparities with uh, people's opinions and i mean we still aren't in a community which accepts everyone um but we have come a huge long way like if you just look back 50 years it's just insane the amount of changes um it probably could do with being a bit more intersectional and realizing that there are different types of lgbt 
key people. Um, there are black, Asian, Muslim, disabled, and probably being a bit more old, inclusive. Young. Old, young, probably be a bit more inclusive, I would say. I would say the same, and I think maybe more to do with the employers as well, sort of accepting more of that. I think talking more about it openly, that's important as well. Yeah, 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 yeah I would agree. And not looking at it as a sort of a weakness, feeling bad about it. Um, I don't know, really. I'd say the scope of it is very large, so some positive steps have been taken, but I do think more needs to be done. FUBAR Radio presents... FUBAR Radio presents... Politics on FUBAR. You're listening to Politics on FUBAR with me, John Elledge. Joining me on the line now is George Montague, uh, the Brighton-based author of The Oldest Gay in the Village. George, it's very good of you to be here today. Hello. Hello, George. How are you today? I'm fine. Thank you for ringing me. <laughs> Thank you very much for being here. Um, as, as I said a moment ago, you're, you're, you're 94, so you've seen, you've seen quite a lot of changes in the gay community in your lifetime. How do you oh, think... Oh, an awful lot, yes. Ha, I mean, for the better. You, I mean, as I understand it, you would have grown up in a time when people were literally jailed for their, their sexuality. I mean, what was it like? Yes, well, in those days, there was only one thing you could do, was to live in the closet completely. And you couldn't, you couldn't do that successfully when you reach a certain age uh, as a man, unless you got married. And, and that's what I did. I got married to stay in the closet. I found a wonderful woman. I told her all about it. She agreed with me. She, she fell in love with me, and she helped me. So your, your wife knew you were gay? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, I wouldn't. How could I marry someone without them knowing, of course? I was a good Boy Scout, never to tell a lie, and that's why i am done what I'm doing now. I said to myself a little while ago, uh, nine years ago, George, you a good boy scout you ne- baden powell taught you never ever to tell a lie i realized i was living a lie and therefore i did something about it it's, qu- it's quite inspiring to hear someone starting campaign on, on issues like these in in their 80s yeah. i was yes well into my 80s yes well i went on the, the first i went on the first uh, my first nine, nine or eight, ten years ago brighton gay pride and what more can I do that than, than come out than that? Everybody then knew I was gay. One of the reasons we're, we're talking about these issues at the moment is because this year sees the, the 50th anniversary of the 1967 Act, which decriminalised uh, sex between two consenting men. I mean, what did that mean to you at the time? But nothing really, because I didn't take any notice of it. I mean, I, <laughs> I just lived alive uh, until I... Uh, and, took no notice of what happened. I, I didn't mix an awful lot with many other gay people. I did have a boyfriend, but saw him less and less. Than, but when I got married, saw him very, very little. Uh, so, so, I mean, I, I suppose one can understand why a boyfriend might be a little uncomfortable with, <laughs> with you being married as well, I suppose. But, uh... Well, my, as I say, my wife knew I was gay when she married me, and she accepted that. And every now and again, she would say... Okay, go on, off you go. And she'd let me go and go to the nearest gay bar and, and, and meet my boyfriend. And that was it. From, from I only ever had, I was always faithful to one boyfriend. I was never, ever promiscuous. And from the perspective of, of, of society as a whole, do you, how important do you think the, the decriminalization was? Oh, to, uh, well, it, it was inevitable. It, it had to come eventually. Uh, people have begun 
to understand and, and accept that what I say is homosexuals didn't decide to be like that. They didn't want, most get, didn't want to be like that. We just like people that I say, you know, people, kids that are born left-handed. They didn't ask to be. And, and people years ago used to change, say, no, you mustn't do that. You must do that. It's the same as a gay. We were born that way. So one of the things you've, you've spent time campaigning on in the last few years is, is what's known as Turing's Law, which is pardons for, for men who were convicted of, as criminal actions for their sexuality. Why, why, why is that campaign so important to you? Well, uh, just a little correction. I didn't campaign for pardons. I won't have anything to do with pardons. My apologies. I, I want apology. We've already, uh, I don't know whether other many people know, but we've already, uh, South Africa, part of South, oh yes, I'm being corrected. <laughs> New Zealand and, and Australia have apologised to their community for their, for, for, for their laws. So, now, so to clarify... Uh, let me tell you, I have, with great pride, met the Speaker of the House of Commons at a, at a gathering in, in, in the Parliament, and there was Mr. Corbyn, Jeremy Corbyn, and I'm very proud to say they are both extremely gay-friendly. I chatted to them both at great length, they assured me. There's no doubt about it whatsoever. It will be debated in the House of Commons, and they assure me that almost the entire Labour side will support it. So, and so I think I just, most of the Conservatives will now, nowadays will. Can I just clarify that the problem with pardons is that it still assumes an offence was committed, whereas an apology was is saying, sorry, there was no offence, it was just an unjust law. Is that the argument? That's right. Sure. That's right. And um, as I understand it, you've, you've, you've been in a civil partnership with, with your husband since, uh, well, now your husband since 2006, and which you converted. 21 years. Into. 21 years. Uh, um, um, we, we, as soon as we could, when it, when it was possible, we, 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 we married. And then, although my husband was a bit reluctant, I said, oh, come on, darling, let's do it for the sake of others. Let, let's get married and, and uh, properly. And last year, Pride was the last year, two, two years ago, we got married in Brighton. And what did that mean for you? That, you know, in, in well, I mean, just, just to promote it with other gay people. As far as I'm concerned, I met some chai 21 years ago, and the morning I woke up in bed with him, the very first night, I considered we were married. We, we were together. We were, a, we were an item. So and you, that had, was you had the proper thunderbolt thing. I considered myself married to him then. But what, what, did it, what did it mean for you that the state, a state which, you know, in your youth had criminalised your sexuality, what did it mean that it was finally sort of willing to, to recognise your life? Well, it was always, in my young day, it was, <laughs> it was always criminalised. And, and I just must mention, if you don't mind, what makes me uh, so keen to get this apology it's not so much the government. The government were bad enough. They instituted the laws. But it's the police. I think we need an apology from the chief of police as well. They, a lot of people don't realize that. They, they, they weren't doing so well because we, we were a bit crafty. We, we didn't do anything. We just smiled and, 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 and walked out and talked away from where we met. 
they, they would send in this gents' toilet, which is the only place in a small country town or village. That was the only place that gay people could meet. We didn't do anything. We just wanted to meet someone and, and prove to ourselves that we were not the only one. But the police then started sending in this young, youngest policeman that they had in the force, not gay, not in uniform. He would, he would smile and talk and chat up the other in there. Now that's what I, that's provocateur, and I think that was unfair. I, I mean, it sounds like a form of entrapment, from the basically. For that. It's a form of entrapment, really, isn't it? I mean, they were trying, they were specifically trying to catch to catch people doing things. Entrapment, yes. Yeah. Um, so, so we've talked a lot about how, how things have improved uh, during your lifetime. And what, what do you think there is still to come? What would you like to think would happen next for There's only for the one community? thing still to come, and it will come in the next two or three months, and that is a debate in the House of Commons, which I've insisted on, because there's no good just the Prime Minister apologising. We want a debate in the House of Commons and a vote, an almost unanimous vote, for an apology to the whole of the gay community, mainly my generation. Do you think that's, I mean, you've mentioned Jeremy Corbyn's support for it, but do you think that's, that will come under... I've chatted to him and he says, oh yes, he's going to try for it and we're going to get it. Well, George, it's been great to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us today. And your, Thank your, your, you mem- so your memoir, The Oldest Gay in the Village, is, is available on Amazon now, I believe. That's right. Well, thank, thank you for being with us today, George. I really appreciate it. Very kind. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we're about to wrap up the show now, but, you know, we have been, as, as we tend to do, we've been, we've been polling the followers of the, the Fubar Radio Twitter feed. Today we've been asking the question, do you, what, what do you think needs to be done for the, to improve the rights of the LGBT community. And, you know, we, we, as, as is the way with Twitter polls, we had four different options. Um, the most popular, 37%, was, was more education on the subject, which, you know, fair enough. I think it's been pretty clear from some of the things that I've, I've confessed my own ignorance to today that that is, that is certainly an issue we, we need. 20% want to reduce hate crime. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure 100% would like to reduce hate crime, to be honest, but 20% said that was their priority. 10% want more government representation, but the, the other very popular item was uh, 33% want to take away Donald Trump's rights, which I don't think is a, an LGBT-specific proposal. I think we'd all, we'd all quite like to see that, to be honest, at this point. Anyway, I've been John Ellidge. Thank you for joining us today, and uh, goodbye, and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes.